One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Before I get to my guest, who is the amazing writer, Devi Laskar, I want to share a little update on the podcast, and thank you for listening. First, I'm happy to say that this episode is the second one in my seventh year of hosting and producing First Draft. My sixth anniversary was earlier this month in June 2019, and I'm so grateful and humbled by all of you who have listened over the years. I started this show with an idea to talk to authors about their most recent published work, and it has grown, if I say so myself, into an incredible archive of interviews that highlight both the craft of writing and the themes the writers are exploring in their work. I've committed to conducting at least 40 interviews a year, but I've tended to hover around 45 to 48 meaning basically I read a book a week all year. Until two months ago, I was funded by Aspen Public Radio. That funding has ended, but I'm committed to continuing this show. I love doing it, and I hope you love listening. It's not an easy task to research potential guests, book them on the show, read their work, prepare for the interview, edit the content, and get it on the air. It takes time, money, and dogged determination to keep up with this. This podcast also requires resources in terms of equipment, hosting services, and time. So if you enjoy this podcast, I have four requests. First, please keep listening. I love having you out there. Second, invite a friend or two to subscribe. Third, please rate this podcast on iTunes. It helps me get new listeners. And fourth, please consider donating to keep this podcast going at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Every donation counts in building a community of listeners. And for your donations, I'm offering various gifts, which include extras from the interviews that aren't on this episode, writing tips from authors, books sent right to your door, cuts from the interviews, 
Similar to public radio, every donation counts and will help keep the show on the air. My goal is to secure other resources of funding within the next year. In the meantime, please know your patronage on all levels from being a listener, a raider, and a donor matters so much, and I couldn't do it without you. So thank you for tuning in. My guest today is poet and fiction writer Devi Laskar. Her novel is called The Atlas of Reds and Blues, which tells the story of a Bengali-American family living in Georgia. The narrator, only known as Mother, has been shot by the police in a raid on her home that was racially motivated. The novel is a kaleidoscopic view of Mother's own childhood, her career as a journalist, her marriage to a white man who is often traveling, and her experience of mothering three children. Looming ever-present in the narrative is the racism she and her children face at school, in their neighborhood, and even in their own home via police invasion for being Bengali-American. The Atlas of Reds and Blues is told via flashback in poetic-like structure. The novel is a meditation about what it means to be other in America and how it feels from the inside. We began our discussion with Devi Laskar sharing how she began writing the novel. You know, when I first started to write this story, it was a family story. And the book I hold is like the gold standard of of books is The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. And um, and the reason why I hold it so dear to my heart is because she's a poet who wrote a novel. And if you take all the beautiful chapters of that book and put it together, it forms the novel. And yet, many of the individual parts of that book are heavily anthologized in poetry anthologies. And so I wanted to write something like that. So I wrote a family story and um, I took it to Squaw Valley and it was well received. And then I made it much longer and bigger. And then unfortunately in 2010, my husband was racially targeted by his former employer in Georgia and the state police did come to my house and raid my house at gunpoint. And among the things that they took was my computer. So I lost most of my work. And so I sort of had to start over and it took me a long time. By the time I was able to start this book over, uh, it was 2014 and I really loved still the small chapters and the quick pace of the book. Um, I used to be a reporter and I am a poet, so I've had years of people telling me to make it shorter. And I, I really wanted to keep the short chapters, so I, I started with that. But what I did find was that the raid became the contextual glue of the book, and that's how it changed it stopped being strictly a family story and it took on different meaning and different layers for me because I really wanted to explore more the racism and the misogyny and what it meant to be other and invisible in America. It's so heartbreaking that you went through that experience and especially not especially, there's no especially, it's awful no matter what, but that it came from someone that you you knew. And, and how did you heal or reckon with that? How did it, you know, it must have impacted every cell of your being. 
It did. You know, um, uh, you know, the first year after the raid, I wasn't doing much writing, sort of corralling the family and trying to get our life back in some kind of semblance of order. But then in June of 2011, I tried to sit down and write and I found that I couldn't. Um, it was just not possible. And so I had a really good friend in Atlanta and she she made me go watch Julie and Julia. So for those who don't know, it's the true life story of Julie Powell. She gave herself a constraint. She had to cook every recipe out of Julia Child's famous cookbook uh, within the year. And I am a photographer too. And so my friend said, you know, you take pictures, you should post them online so we can all hold you accountable and you should caption your pictures. Because the minute you caption them or title them, then, and you do this as a practice, your words will come back. And she was right. So I started on June 23rd, 2011, and I do it to this day. And I take at least one photograph a day and I caption it and I post it. And um, within a year, my poetry came back, which was great. And then three years later, the prose came back. And so I was able to get my words back. And then I was able to write the story. And I, you know, I won't, I won't say it was cathartic, because I don't actually believe in catharsis through writing. I think what it did help me do was I really changed as a person. And I changed as a writer. And writing this book helped me uh, demonstrate the change and hopefully pass that on to the reader. Was Did you have any trepidation at all about writing this in terms of your immediate family who also suffered the injustice of this? Like, was there any fear that they would relive it in some way? Or did you talk to them about it before you wrote it? I actually talked to them about it um, as I was writing it a little bit, but mostly when I was done as I was editing it, um, and in that summer, last summer, I, I went to Tin House uh, workshops in Portland, and some of my workshop hero teachers, uh, they gave these really interesting talks about accountability and, and accountability to your, to your network and to your community and to your family. And, and so at that point, I gave the book to my immediate family, my, my kids and my husband, and also to my, um, my, my sibling and his family. And I just let them read it and I gave them complete authority, you know, to like, if there's something in there that you don't like, or you think is inappropriate, then this is your moment to tell me so I can take it out. And I'm really happy to report that everyone was just super proud and supportive, and I didn't cut a single word. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors into people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. 
In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's talk about the book. You know, it takes place over one day, and Mother is the narrator. Can you tell me about your decision not to name any of the main characters? There's two reasons why the family is not named. Uh, So I'm Bengali. And um, in in my family and in my community, um, no one calls each other by their given names. We all have relational titles. So I really wanted to pay homage to that. So that's one of the reasons why I decided that they should all have relational titles and have no names. But the other reason is, is I wrote a book about, you know, being uh, invisible and being othered in America so in the world of the story, there was no point in me giving the narrator or her family names because no one in their world knows their name or cares to learn it or cares to remember it. And so it was really important for me to also kind of stick to that where she could not be really named because she kind of stands in for everybody who is ignored or othered in this country. One of the things that especially as a white reader, that this novel makes me so hyper aware of is all the sort of microaggressions and little instances of living as a brown person in this white culture. And some of the things that the narrator says is she talks about what it means to be truly invisible in the world. So what I did want to show is that, you know, there are instances, I think, where it's very hurtful and someone says something where you're not really expecting it at that moment. You know, for example, you're not really expecting microaggression at the grocery store, but that's where it sometimes happens. Or you're not really expecting it when you're dropping off clothes at the dry cleaners. You know, that's... That's a task that a lot of people do, and you just don't expect something rude to be happening at that at that moment. And I I personally have gone through some of those kinds of moments, and I've seen other people go through it, and um, I just know the feeling, you know, that feeling where, you know, they don't they don't see me. I'm I'm invisible, but also if they do see me, they just see me as someone so unlike them. There's no empathy. There's no um, understanding. And so, so I might as well not be there. And I wanted to kind of convey that because I feel like 
especially these days um, in the current political climate. You know, there are a lot of people who feel othered and invisible and who are who feel unheard. And I wanted to just share that feeling. It's one of the reasons why I put the raid in. No, I, I was not shot, uh, but I, I had my narrator be shot because one of the things, you know, I realize is that, you know, it is a literary conceit to say that you're, you have a life flashing before your eyes narrative, but it is also somewhat true that when a policeman is pointing his assault rifle at you, that you think about your life very quickly and you think about what's important. And I wanted to convey that through my narrator because I feel like everyone goes through something really hard in their lives, whether or not it rises to the occasion, the evening news. And everyone knows that feeling of when something's going wrong and you're trying to kind of take stock of the beauty and the importance of the relationships in your life and the beauty in your life in case you don't have a chance to do it again. And that was sort of what I was hoping for. I think something that comes across, too, is the ways in which she has to protect her children. They come home with tales of maybe being dragged across the playground or being told that, you know, maybe someone won't marry them. Or basically, she has to teach her kids what she calls a stiff upper lip game. A little bit of that story is true. Um, I did have a uh, one of my kids did have a bad experience at school. And, um, you know, we were, she was just young enough where we played a lot of different games. We played board games and board games and, and, and she was just that age. And um, so, you know, we did play the stiff upper lip game. I was like, well, you know, what do you think we should do about this? And we kind of talked it out and I didn't call it that in real life, but when I had to name it, you know, um, I was like, oh, well, you know, you know, because I remember when we were playing the, that game and talking about it, her real life experience, um, you know, I, I had a fake British accent and and she thought that was funny. And so I just wanted to kind of remember that in the story. And it also goes to that that thing where, you know, um, mothers of color are, you know, concerned, especially these days uh, when their children go out into the world because we just don't know if they're going to stay safe. She's experienced a, a lot of loss. Her her beloved dog is dying. She suffered from a miscarriage. She, you know, has to kind of deal with indignities at work. And she is married to to a white man that she calls her hero. But it seems like a very complicated marriage because it's not even the race difference so much as their their approach to race. He's he's kind of more willing, I thought, from my read, to be more gracious. And that means for him, maybe not speaking up in indignities. And he's also not home a lot. So she's bearing the burden of this family. So this book was much longer originally. Uh, it actually went past the day of the raid. And what I realized was that I can't, have it go past the day of the raid because it stops being her story. And I was really determined, especially the second time around in 2014, that uh, that her story be the story and her 
experience be the lens with which we all get to see their lives. And so there was a lot more of the hero in the story, but he was sort of hogging up space. (laughs) So I had to kind of scale him back because I really wanted this to be her story. Uh, Here is a narrator who doesn't normally get to speak. And so I was just going to be giving her all the stage time she wanted. And so, um, so that's how it naturally came that his presence is less in the story because I didn't want him to take over her space. Um, and then the other reason that um, I, I sort of gave him his moniker and uh, had him coming in and out that way is, you know, he is away. He is the primary breadwinner. He is away. They do have a pretty good marriage, but, and he does come and fix things. So um, that's sort of one of the conceits of the book is that, well, he comes back in time all throughout the book and fixes things. So the ending is unclear whether he makes it back in time right? It's ambiguous and it's done on purpose because maybe this is one of the things he can't fix, but we just don't know. But I feel like I gave enough breadcrumbs so people can read it and kind of make up their minds. But I didn't want to be overt in saying something. There was many of of your character's childhood touchstones from the 70s, and one was the Barbie doll. And you talked a lot about the Barbie doll, the white Barbie doll, the introduction of the Barbie doll, the the Barbie doll in Japan. And did you have Barbies or was this more of an icon for you? So I have a little story about the Barbies. So um, my dad was an academic and so I had this great privilege when I was growing up. I grew up in the United States, but um, but we would go back to India um, in the summers. And one year my dad... Um, did a sabbatical in Germany and so we were in Europe and everywhere we went you know over the years especially in the 70s uh, people would ask us you know where are you from and I would say America and then they would uh, you know this was the 70s and so in their minds America represented Barbie dolls and Coca-Cola And in their mind, uh, you know, people would say, oh, everyone there must have like hundreds of Barbie dolls and you must turn on your kitchen tap and Coca-Cola must come out, you know. And so I was really interested in kind of doing a little deep dive in the book about the iconic nature of Barbie dolls. That's how the outside world that's what the rest of the world thinks of America. I think at, at least back then when I was growing up is like, they think that we all have dolls and, and we drink Coke all the time. And I didn't have too many. I had, I had one or two, they didn't last long. My, my mom wasn't a big fan, but also I, I've come to find that I am not actually a big fan and I wasn't really big on giving them to my own kids either. I feel like they represent something not so good. Um, you know, they uh, they represent impossible standard of beauty. They represent, you know, they're they're anatomically incorrect. Um, no matter what you do, you'll never look like that. And someone who looks like me will never look like that. And they also, you know, they set a tone for like women are supposed to be 
like this and they're supposed to be silent and they're supposed to be doll-like and I didn't I didn't care for that I have daughters and I didn't want them to um to play with dolls that set such a bad tone one of the things that your novel does is it kind of blends time because it, it almost has like a dreamlike quality and it makes sense that you're a poet because it is very poetic. It's not like a standard plot-based fictional novel that might just tell a story from beginning to end. So when I turned this manuscript in, I had uh, at the top of each chapter, I had the ampersand, which is which still remains, but I also had dates. I had years where each of the chapters took place, and Jenny was not having it. Uh, she found that that was too easy for the reader, and she wanted me to take all the dates out and rewrite them into the body of the chapters. So I got to write 200 new sentences, um, but she wanted me to do that because she wanted the readers to be sort of uh, lost in the dream of the book, but also she didn't want them to be sure what year they were in because she wanted them to think hard whether this was, uh, this act of microaggression or racism was current or whether this was something that the mother narrator experienced as a child or both. And um, I think that helped, you know, I think that really helped um, by taking the dates out. It just, I think it enmeshed the chapters more so that you weren't sure whether it was happening in the past or in the present. And then as for the structure, um, I belong to this writing group and I have for many years. And one of the, one of the people I work with is a screenwriter and screenwriters use Aristotle's incline. Uh, as their structure for uh, writing scripts for movies. And so I thought that that structure was brilliant and very appropriate for my narrator because she doesn't have 50 pages to muse on anything. It's a very short novel because she has a very short amount of time to think about her life. And so I borrowed the Aristotle's Incline structure and it worked well for my mother narrator. I thought it was appropriate. Can you read a section from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So I have to say I looked high and low this morning and had many choices, but um, the one I'm going to go with is, um, is the section from Citizen by Claudia Rankin. In any case, Youngman doesn't speak to this kind of anger. He doesn't say that witnessing the expression of this more ordinary and daily anger might make the witness believe that a person is insane. And insane is what you think one Sunday afternoon, drinking an Arnold Palmer, watching the 2009 Women's U.S. Open semifinal when brought to full attention by the suddenly explosive behavior of Serena Williams. Serena in HD before your eyes becomes overcome by a rage you recognize and have been taught to hold at a distance for your own good. Serena's behavior on this particular Sunday afternoon suggests that all the injustice she has played through all the years of her illustrious career 
flashes before her, and she decides finally to respond to all of it with a string of invectives. Nothing, not even the repetition of negations. No, no, no. She employed in a similar situation years before as a younger player at the 2004 U.S. Open prepares you for this. Oh my God, she's gone crazy, you say to no one. What does a victorious or defeated black woman's body in a historically white space look like? Serena and her big sister, Venus Williams, brought to mind Zora Neale Hurston's I feel most colored when I am thrown against a sharp white background. This appropriated line, stenciled on canvas by Gwen Ligon, who used plastic letter stencils, smudging oil sticks, and graphite to transform the words into abstractions, seemed to be ad copy for some aspect of life for all black bodies. Tell me more about why you chose that. So, you know, when I was writing this book again for the second time in 2014, um, you know, I was sort of thinking in my head about Sandra's Cisneros' book and and then Claudia Rankin's book, Citizen, came out. And I felt like I got handed a permission slip to write about race. And uh, I, I just was so... Um, obsessed with this book, but also it just sort of overtook my life. And I think I bought and gave away this book as gifts two dozen times over when the book first came out. I was just so relieved that someone had written a book like this and that now I could have, um, you know, my, I could, I could do it too, that I sort of gave me a little courage. And for that, I am always grateful. Can you read a passage from something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. In her dream, she is back at the butterfly house with her hero. Not too long after they return from their grand wedding in India, the fritillary garden is a hothouse, a greenhouse with clear glass cathedral ceilings, and they stand in silence, in awe, fingers entwined, taking in the cluster of monarchs, and what looks like stained glass wings, only they're alive. The telephone rings in this dream because in the real life upon which the dream is based, the telephone really does ring at the desk in the hallway of the annex to the hothouse. It is a shrill clanging, not unlike the sound of an alarm at a firehouse, and the beautiful orange is replaced by emergency red, the red of the fire engines in the nearby station house, the red ink from her teacher, Sister Joan, who gave her a D in the mandatory religion class in fifth grade because she couldn't abide a non-Catholic topping the class. And tell me more about that. So this is one of the chapters that I moved around quite a bit. And I I had it way back in the beginning of the book, and then I had it way at the end. And it wasn't really... It didn't belong in either of those places. And this is one of the chapters that when I finally did read it aloud to myself, I realized that it didn't belong there and I had to go find a home for it. And also, this was one of the chapters that is sort of a composite of three different chapters that I had to collapse because they weren't standing very well on their own. And so I uh, ended up... uh, putting them together and rewriting it a couple of times. And then I'm happy to say I found 
it's home. Where do you write? I write prose uh, at my desk in my little office in my house. I wrote poetry everywhere, but for the for the novel, I stick pretty close to my desk, and I'm usually writing on the computer. But sometimes I write longhand, but still sitting at my desk. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I hope I never get away from writing. Um, I'm just so grateful I'm able to write these days. And uh, we did rescue a little dog um, last year. And so these days, for sure, when I need a break and I want to think about something, we go on long walks and I still think about my writing, but I'm not chained to the desk. So it's wonderful. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have um, a wonderful writing group, and there are a couple of old friends in that group who uh, get to see my work uh, in the early stages and get to tell me if things are working or not working, and I value their opinions very much. How have you dealt with rejection? Gee, not very well. <laughs> um, I've gotten better. I've gotten better. Um, in the beginning, I think when I was an early poet, I was rejected all the time and I was very discouraged. But now I am grateful when someone doesn't take something because I feel like they're trying to tell me that it's not quite there, or it's not quite ready. And it's an indication of maybe I should rethink it and try again. And what is your favorite word? These days, my favorite word is incandescence. I just love how it sounds. It sounds like a spell and it talks about light. And I think that's a wonderful word. It's a wonderful word to share in the world. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Debbie Laskar, author of The Atlas of Reds and Blues. Our interview was recorded at Aspen Public Radio. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Thanks so much for tuning in. As a reminder, please consider supporting First Draft at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support matters and will help keep this podcast going. So far, there are 242 authors in the archive with more coming soon. Thanks for your contributions. And please don't forget to rate First Draft on iTunes. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks again for listening and supporting First Draft.